Welcome to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event podcast, Henry G. Franke moderates a panel discussing Beyond the Farthest Star, a classic science fiction novel restored. The panel features Christopher Paul Carey and Kathy Will Banks. Henry is the editor of the Burroughs Bulletin. Christopher is Director of Publications at Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated, and Kathy is Vice President of Operations there. The panel was part of HerbFest, held in conjunction with PulpFest. This event was recorded on Friday, August 20, 2021, at PulpFest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Henry begins. All right, again, hope, hopefully you all can hear me. Uh, again, I'm Henry Franke. Uh, editor of the Burroughs Bibliophiles. Uh, this will be a short panel on Beyond the Farther Star, the restored edition. Uh, our panel members are uh, Kathy Manavilbanks, who's the Vice President of Operations at EGRB Incorporated, uh, and Christopher Paul Carey, who's the uh, Director of Publishing at Edgarize Burroughs Incorporated. And uh, as hopefully you know by now, uh, Edgarize Burroughs Incorporated has, has been uh, pursuing a pretty rigorous publishing program uh, on a number of fronts with stories and uh, author and uniformed editions of Burroughs on Originals. And one of those stories which has a unique treatment is Beyond the Father Star we just talked about, which again Burroughs completed two novelettes. And those are the stories that have been published uh, ever since Canaveral Press put them out in Tales of Three Planets and then all the subsequent paperback editions. But then we found out that what's been published all these years for especially the first novelette, is not what Burroughs wrote completely. They, it was excised and edited. And uh, Kathy, I'll ask you first. When did, when did you all first realize that, that in fact, Burroughs' original story didn't see print? We actually, uh, Christopher asked me to pull the manuscript out of our archives. So when we were looking at it in the office, uh, he's used it as a basis for a lot of the universe, you know, as, as he's moved forward with expanding the canon, he's been using that because it's such a great world and it's been untapped. So basically, it provides a great starting point and for a lot of creativity. He is, as everybody knows, very creative. So we started to compare what we had already seen here in the office versus what the manuscript showed and the blue book, and we realized there's a lot of significant changes in it. So. Yeah, Christopher started to dig in a lot more, and um, we thought, you know what, we need to restore this. We need to, there's significant changes. It's, it's a lot, so it provided a great opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I took the uh, photocopy of the original main uh, typescript home one weekend, and that's when I really realized it, because uh, I, I went through the whole book in a weekend comparing line by line, and, uh, and I brought, and I marked it up all on paper, and I brought it in uh, like the next Tuesday, I think, the next time I was in the office and showed it to Jim and Kathy. And I'm like, we need to do this. I mean, we were thinking about it before, but I'm like, this is, and it needs to be a restored edition. It's yeah. not just going to be a reprint of the, of the old, you know, Canaveral Press text or the East Books text. So. Now, uh, Richard A. Lupoff was the editor of Canaveral Press, although many people forget that, uh, that Canaveral Press had started publishing Burroughs before he was the editor. So a, a few books came out before. He was the editor, but I believe he was the editor for this one. Do you know why uh, 
did, who obviously got original manuscripts. So other stories didn't have for this one. So um, what, from what I could tell, um, we, we have a copy, we have um, fi file copies of the pulp magazines of just about all of ERB's pulps in our archives. And so I pulled that, um, well I had Kathy pull that, um, and I went and um, you can actually see pencil marks on it um, where um, uh, I believe it's Holly's handwriting, uh, Holbert Burroughs uh, went through and he sort of marked it up and, he, and he's, he's like, make this the, the foreword and, and like, because uh, I think they, there were some minor textual things of, of like the headings and things like that that he was pointing out. Uh, uh, and I think they made a copy of that. I think we have the original here and they must have made us some kind of copy of that and sent that to Richard Lupoff. That's just a supposition, but it does follow how it appeared when it appeared in Tales of Three Planets. So I think that um, they, he did, they didn't send it to him, whereas they did send him the typescript. They must have sent him the typescript of um, part two, Tanger Returns. So he didn't have it. So for whatever reason, they were just like, well, it's already been published. Here it is. So ERB often would go back and um, when the pulp editions, you know, after the pulp editions came out, the serializations and he would collect them into a book form, as Henry was talking about earlier, and um, he would often re revert them to his manuscript texts. There are some some uh, particular books that are significantly different. Um, uh, Lost on Venus is one of them. Uh, if you look at the ERB text, and sometimes the reprints use the magazine text. So sometimes, like the Ace Books editions, we haven't really, you know, if that's what you read, which I did when I was younger. Um, like Lost on Venus, the text is very different from the text uh, of the ERB ink edition, which went back to his manuscript. Um, so, um, so ERB didn't have the, that opportunity with this book because he passed away before it came out in book form. So, and he didn't finish enough to write to do a book, yeah. which uh, again was was unfortunate for us. Uh, but as, as was pointed out, you had to just went into the files and found the original typescript. And, uh, and the driver was for working the, the canon for the ERB universe. Yeah, we're, yes. we're doing both, um, uh, well, Kathy, I think, passed out some handouts there, but we're doing a canonical comic book, mm -hmm. so expanded canon. So I should, I should just quickly mention the canon. That, you know, we have started trying to put out the ERB universe series, which is canonical with Edgar Rice Burroughs, meaning there are many senses of the word canon. I'm using it in the sense of, uh, uh, just authorized, authorized by the company, you know. Uh, so we kind of call it core canon, what Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote, and then expanded canon, what the new writers are writing. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing expanded canon with the comics. So that's Beyond the Farthest Star Warriors or Xandar, which I think is out next Wednesday, hits the stands, the first issue of it. Um, and uh, kind of deep diving into the world building. And then um, my novel, um, I did a reading earlier, uh, Victory Harbin Fires of Halos, or Halos, I don't know how ERB pronounced it, um, uh, is um, coming out uh, later next year, hopefully, if I can get it written, because I'm publishing a lot of books for the company, <laughs> which take a lot of, takes a lot of time. But. Definitely does. Uh, and now, again, the, this, uh, the restored edition, which is uh, actually here to buy, some of you may have already bought it, and you have the hardcover as well as so we just have the paperback here because right, the hardcover yeah. sold out. Well, no, that we had a single hardcover that had come in from our printer, ah. and we're waiting for our, our bigger shipment. <laughs> so, 
So we just haven't we just received. We just got 11 boxes today, so who knows what that Yeah, is. I just got a text. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 11 boxes came in, so it's exciting. So. And again, uh, Chris has written a forward that, that goes into detail about what was excised and, uh, and the flavor of what was excised, and we'll talk about that in a yeah. minute. But uh, Kathy, you, you you have a substantial archive section in the book as well. Yes. Uh, what did and of course all those charts that had the details of the, of the star system and planet are in there on the front end, but the archive material. What what did you find, if anything, that suggested uh, how Burroughs thought about the stories uh, that he was writing? If he had anything planned for the future, or was it? Uh, well, I believe, that, look at all the hard work that he put into it. He really took a lot of time to build this world. This, this was, you know, a new foundation for him to get away from the Tarzan because he had gotten to a certain point where he was just kind of over that. And so I think he wanted to just start from scratch and just do something really creative and different. And so when we could look at all of the details and all the digging in and, and the hard, the, all, all of the, his drawings, his intricate drawings and whatnot, you're not going to do that just for a one-off. Yeah. I think you're going to do that because you have such intention to really grow it, and, and this could have been his next passion. So that, that was my interpretation of what we found. Uh, I, just based on some of the research material I've seen, I, I really do believe that Burroughs, this is how he got, uh, got out of the boredom of just writing the same old stories, was mm -hmm. something new and imaginative and creative, exactly. and this thing was way beyond yeah. just adding to to other and stories. You can see how uh, advanced he was for his time. I mean, he, he built worlds before that was even a thing, before we even understood that that was really a concept. I mean, look at Marvel's taken all of the world building and gone, you know, just made it huge. But Edgar Rice Burroughs did it first, and he did a great job, and uh, this is another example of that. <clears throat> there's, there's one interesting thing that I found uh, in, in the uh, correspondence. There's uh, just a handwritten handwritten note, and then at the end of the actual manuscript of um, uh, Tangro Returns, I believe it's Tangro. Yes, uh, do, 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 do. actually, the end of the manuscript of Beyond the Farthest Star, the first part. Actually, I wanted to clarify when it was published in Blue Book, it was published as Beyond the Farthest Star, not to venture on Pelota. That was something that Richard Lupoff probably came up with as as a you know part one title, I believe. So, um, but. Um, uh, at the end of the uh, manuscript for part one, uh, and I've printed that in here, um, note, suggested alternate, alternative titles. It is war. That's a phrase that echoes throughout the book. It is, you know, about, you know, it's war. It explains everything because they're just a war-like war society. But, uh, and then the ghostly script was the other alternate, alternative title. So, Hardcore ERB fans uh, know about that, that have heard about that manuscript. It's an unpublished manuscript um, that ERB wrote, which was really about the, the afterlife. And it was uh, about a, um, uh, a black uh, soldier who died in the Spanish-American War at the Battle of San Juan Hill, and then woke up on an, on, in another world which actually occupied the same space as Earth, but there were three suns. And it's a very, very strange manuscript. It's about 7,000 words long. It's clearly meant to be a novel. Uh, he actually started it in the 1920s, picked it up almost a decade later, and continued to write it. So it's definitely something that was on his mind to write. And interestingly, that story was told to him through ghostly typewriting, just like the opening of Beyond the Farthest Star, if you've read the opening of the book. Um, and so he was obviously connecting 
those two those two ideas, I think. And I thought that was a very fascinating revelation. It's interesting that people keep saying, well, the problem with the princes of Mars is that it doesn't explain how he got to Mars. I'm going, do you not understand uh, paranormal and other kinds of, uh, of approaches, which were very, very much in vogue, by the way, uh, just ask any Arthur Conan Doyle uh, fan. But th that was not laughed at at, at the time, and, uh, and frankly, I think many people don't laugh at it today, but uh, science fiction writers, I guess, get excited about that. Um, uh, just one further comment on that. Um, that's, uh, I, I see the ghostly script. I mean, I know we're talking about this book, but I do believe they're related. I see the ghostly script as a skeleton key to how ERB was thinking about how that worked. He had certain characters like Tangor, uh, Betty Caldwell from the Venus books, Ulysses Paxton, John Carter, who all had this way to project themselves. And I, I see the ghostly script as but skeleton key to understanding that. It's, he basically ex sort of explains the pseudoscience behind it in a sort of occult way almost. Um, and that's something that we are incorporating and exploring, I should say, in, in the, the new ERB universe books. So, yeah. I'll tell you, in the years that I've mentioned Beyond the Forest Star to people, I've, I've, I myself have treated it as something of an anti-war novel, just like I believe the, uh, Beyond 30 was something of an anti-war novel. But, but Burroughs was, in fact, especially when he was younger, was all in on military uh, service. He was in on page. He was a very patriotic person. Uh, he was not one of those that, that was, you call a pacifist in any way. And my, when I read Beyond the Father's Star, I kept thinking of it as being him maturing and thinking about war differently. But uh, when you look at some of the revised components and you just read some of the correspondence, I, I sometimes wonder if it was meant to be anti-war, or if it was more about uh, concern of fascist nations at the time, because uh, World War II was uh, erupting, and his his push for service. Because frankly, especially with the revised components, it looks pretty bleak. I'm curious, Chris, what you think about what Burroughs' ideas may have been when he when he wrote this story. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, Tangor himself is is a warrior. You know, he is a, a fighter pilot, presumably, um, and um, so he's chosen a war hero. You know, but it is very, very bleak. Um, uh, uh, it's certainly anti-fascist. Absolutely, um, he uh, you know goes undercover in the second part to uh, Cap Capara. And it's it's a very bleak society that <laughs> he runs into this totalitarian society um, that he has to navigate. Um, and so it's uh, like the second part's very much like espionage war, you know, sp you know, spy war story. Um, so, um, but there is there is also the element of patriotism, you know, in, in the face of fighting that. I don't, I, you know, it's hard to say if it's anti-war, but I noticed it as well, and it definitely reads. Uh, more anti-war with the excise material restored to it. Um, there, a lot of that was, um, I believe, you'll read it in my preface if you pick up the book, but I, I believe that um, the material was cut because the U.S. was heading into war. This was written in the end of 1940, um, 1940 and um, I believe that the editor probably thought some of the material like the, the um, 
cannibalization of the war dead by the enemy and stuff like that, um, processing as, as food to, to, to feed their war-ravaged peoples, um, was just too dark for the, the readership. And he, the, the, the editor probably just didn't want to demoralize the readership um, in this really tense, scary time. So. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's interesting that the writing style, uh, to me, uh, it seemed to be terse. Uh, the writing structure and the sentence and all were terse. Now, that's not to ourselves. Burroughs was writing fast. He was getting his, uh, his stories done. But I thought he, he cared in particular about getting this right up front because I thought he was going to write a lot more in it. So I don't know if he, he went uh, Hemingway on us on purpose or if he was just trying to speed the writing process. I'm, I'm curious what... What do you think about that? I, you know, I don't know what the motivation was, but um, I mean, I also wonder if he was he was he updating his style to to meet the revised styles of the time because 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 literature was moving sort of in that direction, really, and, and it's you know very simple, clean, quick prose. It still reads really, really well, I think. Um, so. But you, you look, he didn't just do that with Beyond the Farthest Star. He did that with, you know, even Skeleton Men of, of Jupiter is not as ornate as uh, the earlier John Carter books, which are, are really ornate. That's some of his most ornate uh, language. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, even the later Tarzan books, you know, they, 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 they were all that way. So it's hard to tell whether that was just him um, trying to get the story done. He's getting older, uh, writing briefer um, works, but um, I, w I wonder if he, he was just updating his style to me, you know, I, I don't know how much you, you know, m maybe you have a, a better idea of how much uh, he was being influenced by other writers at that time, you know, it's not I've, something I've really studied. I've been very curious about that, uh, uh, even more recently, as to if his style had actually on, you know, it changed. The fact that he wrote novelettes and had to get him certain words out of word counts, I don't know if that may have influenced it. But he knew he was going to write eventually what looked like novels anyway. So uh, to me, this is an interesting question about whether he had, he had changed uh, his style as a writer. Well, that, that's an interesting point, just the idea that he was writing, like, you know, uh, writing them in novelettes form. That, I can, just as a writer myself, I would think that would affect the way that I told the story. And, if I was writing these more concise, like a shorter thing, they're generally more concise, and you have to wrap them up. You don't have time to like spin the the golden prose and go on and on, you know. So um, I wonder if that had some kind of effect. It's not the first time that, that Burroughs has seemed to come to a pretty quick conclusion when it looks like he hit his word count. Ironically, <laughs> uh, Lana Guthall, you know, a war kind of comes and goes in the last three, four pages. Yeah. Uh, but it's otherwise a pretty intricate storyline. Yeah. He did that in Beyond 32, I thought, wrapped up really fast at the end. <laughs> There's like a whole world war going on, and it's just, okay, over. <laughs> he was so full of ideas in those days, he yeah. wanted to move to the next story uh, and make some more money. Um, those, those are questions I have. I don't know if you all uh, want to uh, add a little more to the restored edition uh, discussion. Um, so, yeah, you can see the bullet points here. We've got Mark Schultz doing the frontispiece, Frazetta Carvard, of course. Um, we put the interior illustrations from the uh, Canaveral Press Tales of Three Planets in here. Beautiful. They turned out really, really crisp, too. Um, and um, 
We also put the, the earlier Henry had shown the graphics of the solar system and all in the, uh, the, the unison script in here and stuff like that that ERB had developed. We put those in from the Canaveral Press edition, but we also have ERB's originals. We reprinted those in the back here too, which is really always neat to see what Kathy was talking about earlier. So um, really proud of this edition. I think we're all really proud of it. Um, uh, I One question that yeah. uh, was posed earlier was, um, can you give us an example of some of the changes or additions or updates? Yeah, um, very, very briefly. Uh, like I was saying before, it's a, a lot about like the, the really grim horrors of war. Um, there were also some interesting things, like uh, there, there was a, a character that Tangor is with another soldier, and they get uh, uh, land on another continent, and they're off on an adventure. And um, uh, the editor actually cut ERB's humor from from it. it, it uh, the, the the other character, like ERB, like Tangor, as he's interacting with this other character, keeps making like uh, keeps saying something, and then the guy comes back super pessimistically. You know, and and then Tangor just keeps throwing in these lines about you know this is like this is you know the most pessimistic person I've ever met, and then it just keeps going on and on and on. And the editor cut most of those. There's like one or two that he left in, but most of them are cut. But it's actually really humorous when you read it. I thought I thought it was funny. I, I enjoy you know I, I don't like the fact that that was cut, so I obviously put that back in. Um, there was a uh, some interesting references to um, some things going on at the time. A lot of the references to uh, various gangs uh, and corruption and stuff like that going on. And there's a, a political reference to uh, Frank Hogg, or Haig, is it Haig? Frank Haig, I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, of New Jersey, but a prominent politician um, who uh, was known for, for being corrupt. In fact, they later, after he died, found his desk and it had a drawer in it where people could pass money, bribes through, <laughs> through it. And so ERB was digging him uh, in it, um, and all that got cut, like the time, those timely references and all. So that that was interesting, but some of the some of the material that was cut. Interesting. Again, when you see the, the fall up, it, it really does to me. It's just a better storyline. Yeah. We we have uh, maybe no more time left. Not okay. even for one question. Sure. One one question. <laughs> Short question. Anyone? Yes. Is there is there any sort of Well, in this instance, we don't know. Uh, Ralph Rothman, his secretary, sold this story. And all the correspondence that I saw with the editor was between Ralph Rothman and, um, and the editor, which it was Donald Kennicott. Um, uh, whether Donald Kennicott actually did the hands-on edits, I don't know, but I would, I would assume he did. Um, Long-time editor for ERB. Um, and, um, but I don't know, but generally speaking, he didn't like it. He did not like to be edited. He did not like it. So I feel very confident in restoring, <laughs> restoring this. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure if Burroughs got a chance to see some of the pulps uh, out in Hawaii. And so he may not have had a chance to even look at these and go, hmm. Yeah. Because Rothman did do most of the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. But I can, as, as Chris said, sometimes he just tolerated to get it out and get his paycheck because yeah. he knew he could restore it later. Yeah. But he was... A couple of times he complained pretty bitterly when he saw what the editors had done yeah. on some of the magazines. All right, that's, that's a great question. 
And I think that wraps us up for this short panel, and we'll, uh, Kathy and Chris will take charge of the next panel in a few minutes. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2021.